We're so glad that you're here watching online and uh, or being here in the room with us. We're just delighted and what a privilege. Uh, YouTube is uh, something that maybe you who are younger are used to a little more than me, but I have found YouTube to be very helpful when replacing a toilet, when doing construction projects, and it's kind of strange. Maybe I'm a little bit offended as a carpenter who spent five years figuring out how to do carpentry, that somebody can go online and look and see how to do something, and it's like, hey, I did all that work for what? How did I become really good at that? So is it true that you can be a great nurse by just watching a YouTube video? Is it true that you can be a great teacher just by watching a YouTube Even if the title of the YouTube video is how to be a great teacher. Does that make you a great teacher, or is there more involved? Now, we're talking about the Bible and that it, it is the sword of the Spirit. And this week I bought a sword, a double-edged sword, as an example for this, uh, this illustration or for this sermon. And uh, I spent $35 on this double-edged sword. And it's, it's, uh, it's not completely sharp, but it's sharp. It's, uh, and I, I watched some YouTube videos, and I learned and uh, I, I can tell you that I practiced for about five minutes because at that point, my arm got tired. And I'm like, okay, that's, this thing's kind of heavy, actually. So I, uh, today we're going to talk about how the scriptures are like a double-edged sword. But I thought as an example, I'd have Cameron come up and, uh, you know, maybe this is sharp enough to, like, cut hair. What do you think? You've got, you just get it up there high enough and we'll... Uh, all right, we'll, we'll see you maybe later on in the sermon, but for now, we'll have you stay there. But the cool, the cool thing about a double-edged sword is in the first century, this, this was probably the one, one of the most powerful weapons that was used in warfare. Uh, the, the, maybe the arrow was a little more powerful or a little more potent, but a double-edged sword means that every movement of the sword has the ability to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And I learned you don't hold like this, you don't swing like this, but you're, you're always protecting, but then countering, and both sides of the blade, you don't have to turn it around to come back because it's a single-edged sword. So when the scriptures are de described as a double-edged sword, we're going to see what that means, that its design is to cut into our lives deeply and effectively and change us radically. The Word of God is a double-edged sword in our lives. So the passage that we're looking at today in Hebrews 4, 12 through 16, we're going to see that not only the Bible, the Word of God, but the person, the Word of God in Jesus Christ, is God's provision for our security and growth. That it is a tool intended to be used in our life. And, and I want you to know that this is not the only passage in Scripture in Hebrews 4 that talks about the Bible as a sword. In Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 17, it is described this way. When it's talking about putting on the full armor of God, that you take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That the Holy Spirit is the one wielding the sword in our lives in an effective way to change us radically. So today, let's look at Hebrews 
chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Read along with me, if you will. Hebrews 4, 12 through 16. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God's provision for our security and growth. The sword of God, which is the Scriptures, cuts to the heart. We're in chapter 4 in Hebrews towards the end and we're at a turning point in the book in this sermon by the author of Hebrews. To this point, he's been warning us. He's been telling us that we can look to Christ, that he is sufficient, that he is the answer. So there's two themes that have been running, and the most important theme is the excellency of Christ. And that theme is going to continue to the end of Hebrews. You can put your trust in Christ. The other theme is this admonition, this exhortation, this warning to stop drifting, to stop pretending, to not, don't fall away from your faith. Those two are running side by side. And now when we get to the end of chapter 4, we see two things that are put in place by the Word of God to help us grow, to help us be strong, to help us be confident in our faith. And he begins with the Word of God. The sword of God cuts to the heart. For the Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is living and active. That means this Bible that we held up in high regard in the beginning when you walked in, I don't know if you saw it, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God is held in high regard among us as Christians. As the, the passage that God has sent to us, the letter that God has sent to us that will cause us to grow, that can, can change our lives, can point out our sin, can show us where we're flawed. The Word of God is living and active. I have it open to, to Matthew 4. It started actually in Acts 7, verse 38. It says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and with our fathers he received living oracles to give us. Acts 7, 38, in Stephen's sermon where he's defending Christ and being a Christian, he says that when Moses went up the mountain and received the Ten Commandments, they were living oracles. What does that mean? They were living commandments that he received, that he brought down the mountain. That means that God put his spirit into the word of God to bring spiritual life to us, to change us. And then in Matthew 4, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, and three times he rebuffs Satan and rebuffs the temptation using the Scriptures, using the book of Deuteronomy. And in Matthew 4, 4, he says, but he answered to his temptation, to his tempter, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That means that as much as we live by the food that we're going to eat this afternoon and by the air that we breathe this afternoon, we live as Christians by the Word of God. The Scriptures breathe life into us, have the potential of breathing life into us. Just owning a sword does not mean I can use it. Just owning a Bible doesn't mean that it breathes life into you. In fact, there have been people that have sat in church their whole life and have never come alive. So we have to ask, ask why is that? Why is the Word of God, for some people, life-giving, radically changing their lives, and for some people, uh, it's boring. Didn't do a thing for me. Can't wait to get to lunch. And God had prepared for us a lunch, a feast, spiritually. It was beyond our understanding. It's living and active. That's what the Scriptures say. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. When it says it's sharper than any two-edged sword, let's look first at Psalm 119.11, where it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The psalmist is saying, and Wes actually quoted it in his prayer before the, before the sermon, the psalmist is saying that if I hide God's word in my heart, it will keep me from sin. Isn't that amazing? Are any of you getting your butts kicked by sin? It owns you. You think you're going to just die with that sin. That's just who I am. Whatever that continuing sin is, I am just a person who gossips. That's the end of it. God will redeem me from it one day, but not yet. I hide these words in my heart so that I will not sin against you. I can't tell you how many times in my life as a Christian, God's word that has been memorized comes to light while I'm being tempted and how naked and bare I would feel if I didn't know God's word. It's like I'm on my own being tempted. And God has provided that gift, that sword. In 1 Peter 1.23 it says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The Bible, the scriptures, are God-breathed. God infused it. Tons of different authors and and different books, and, and yet God, throughout generation after generation, provided His Word miraculously by the power of the Spirit, and in His Word, salvation can be found. In His Word, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ can be found. In His Word, He has given us an invitation. Come and drink from the well that I've given Can we possibly hold the Word of God in higher regard? What do we need more? A YouTube video on how to change a toilet? Is that what will help us? Or how about the Word of God, how we can actually live our lives and be the parents or the sister or the friend that God intended for us to be? It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing. And I want you to see the words that are used to describe the Word of God. Sounds harsh to me. 
piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him must give account. Now you kind of know why some people don't want to go to church. Because the Word of God is designed to cut deep. To lay bare. To, to open up what are our real intentions. Why are you doing what you're doing? And should you be doing what you're doing? What are the intentions behind it? Well, I'm just going to do whatever makes me feel good and I need that or I need this. And yet the Word of God cuts to the core of what you actually need because your designer has written a letter for you. So why so harsh? Why is the Word of God described as something that cuts deeply, that divides at our very core? Because the problem is is that our hearts have evil in them at their very core. And God wants us to live. You could best describe it as God cutting cancer spiritually from our bodies. And God is the great physician who is trying to give you life. And we might say, well, I love my sin. I want to keep that. I don't want to give that up. And God is saying, I have given you my word so it will cut away that thing that's killing you. If you leave that there, it's going to kill you more. It's going to take away the things you say you love. You're going to hurt the ones you say you love. And God intended for you to live. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Are you willing to sit on the operating table? Are you willing to let God do His work? Do you come to church ready for Him to operate? Go ahead and cut what you need to cut. Go ahead and do what you need to do, God. I trust you. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It knows what you're really thinking and what you really mean. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. In Isaiah 55, 11, it says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. His word when we submit ourselves to it, when we let God do what He's doing and we don't withhold our hearts from Him before His Word, we'll cut. Every time. We will be changed. When was the last time that you were radically changed by the Word of God? When's the last time that you were heading a direction and you found out it was the wrong direction? Or you had an attitude and you found out it was the wrong attitude. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. 
There is coming a time when we will be laid bare, whether we submit or not, before the judgment seat. And that's what the passage concludes with, to whom we must give account. It isn't a question of whether we want to. This isn't picking, I decide to sit under God's power and His reign, or I decide to not sit under God's power and reign. The reality is, you can hold them off for a little while, but you will be laid bare before God the Father. And today, we can be laid bare before Him and before His Word and be changed. Now, at this point in the sermon, maybe you're thinking, I wish I didn't go to church today. Is church really that harsh? Am I supposed to come here and be radically changed? And it sounds painful. How about we come to church and go to a church where I just tell you, you guys are all great. Keep, keep it up. You're doing fine. How about if we come to the Word of God and we just sift through and find the verses that make us feel good? Take them right out of context and we're just going to, well, we're about to get to them. The second half of this passage is a real feel-good. But I want you to know before we get to that second half of the passage, what God intends for us. So what is the context? What is the hope for us to use the Word of God effectively? In the introduction, I pulled out the sword and wanted you to see that five minutes with a sword does not make me a sword master. And I hate to break it to you, five minutes with a plumbing commercial does not make you a plumber. Or a carpenter, or a teacher, or anything else. And yet some of us feel like five minutes in church and I'm an expert with the Word of God. These are some places where we can become, we can excel in how we use or how God uses the Word of God in us and around us. The first is in a worship service. And in a worship service, it's about corporate submission before God's Word. You'll notice we paused for a minute and I took the Scriptures off of the stand and brought them up here. I wanted you to sense this is not about this sword. This is about this sword. I wanted you to see the reverence. And I want you to know as a preacher, I look at it as my responsibility to preach God's Word. Somebody might say, well, why don't you preach this? Or why don't you preach that? My goal is to preach through the book as God wrote it. Not to jump around and give you what I think you want to hear. Or what I want to hear. The second thing I want you to know is that never have I preached. I can't think of one time that I've preached where I think in my mind, well, they all really need to hear this. Without thinking first, I need to hear this. That I need to, in my mind, whether you know it or not, I come off the stage before the Word of God and I'm sitting here taking notes saying, in my study, while I'm, while I'm studying, God, what do you want me to change? What do you want me to do? And if my heart isn't changed, then how can I expect yours to be? This is about all of us coming together in church and sitting under God's Word and letting the Spirit of God Use it like a scalpel, trusting his hand. You're not here to hurt me. You're here because you love me and you don't want this sin in my life. Did you come today to be changed? If you didn't come today to be changed and you're stiff-necked, you can leave without being changed. That's the kind of God we serve. 
You can study his word, you can memorize his word, and it cannot affect your heart for the rest of your life. What a shame. The surgeon was there, willing and waiting. When we come together for church, one of the primary things we're here for is as a congregation, as a group, to be changed by the word of God and as a group of individuals to be radically changed by the word of God. There's the hope of the church. Hope of the church isn't that we got together the best people we could find. The hope of the church is that we got people together that were willing to submit to the word of God together. The next I want you to see is small group Bible studies. Why small group Bible studies? I've been involved in small group Bible studies most of my adult life. In fact, in high school we were doing small group Bible studies. What are those about? Well, small group Bible studies give you the opportunity in the context of a much closer relationship with people to study God's Word and to apply it together with some accountability. Small group Bible studies, this isn't the environment where somebody can say, yep, this is really convicting me, I'm going to stop lying. But in a small group Bible study, we can say, you know, I've really had a hard time lying, being dishonest. I'd like to have that change. Would you pray with me? You come across a verse. I remember one of my Bible studies and one of the friends that was in my Bible study latched on to one verse we were studying. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. He lived that for the next six months. In fact, he brought it up two years later. It was a lifeline for him. I'm supposed to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For my anger does not accomplish what God wants to accomplish. And as he worked that out in his relationships at work and his relationships at home, he said, he testified, it was a small group Bible study, you can do that. This is radically changing my life. Now for someone else, it was a different verse. Maybe in that same study, that same Bible study, you might latch on to Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Wait a minute, you mean God can be trusted all the time? You mean I don't need to be afraid and I'm not alone? Maybe that's the passage, the lifeline that the Spirit gives you. And in a small group Bible study, we have the ability to focus in on each other's lives and encourage each other. The Word of God can take hold But if those are the only two places that you're working on your relationship, that would be like saying that you're going to be a parent on Sundays and on Wednesday nights. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) That is not an option. I'm not offering that today. You can't parent in three hours a week. And you can't have a vital relationship with the living God in three hours a week or four hours a week. It's going to require your heart daily. A daily investment in the relationship with God and in His Word. And There are so many cool ways to do it now. We have the Scriptures on, on our phones and you can listen to it while you're driving and you can study it, you can memorize it. I, when I was a carpenter and I would do ceilings, I didn't have to think much when I was doing ceilings and I it was before phones did what they do now and I would record on a cassette me reading scriptures, and I would play it over and over, and a lot of what I memorized 
was done while I was doing acoustical ceilings on stilts because it's playing in my head the Word of God over and over and over again. And there are times while I'm listening that God grabs my heart. Do you want Him to? Grab your heart and change you. Give you hope. Realize His love was so much more than I ever imagined. And His grace was there for us. Five minutes of swinging a sword does not make me proficient to poke any of you, to cut. And the Word of God, I can tell you, I became a pastor much later in my life, and I look at some seasoned pastors and I realize the way they handle the Word of God, I, I want to keep getting better at it. I want to grow. Don't you? I, of all the things I'm proficient at, I want to be proficient in handling God's Word. And in my personal life, and in your personal life, may our lives be defined by pursuing our relationship with God through studying His Word. The Word of God is a sword that cuts to the heart. The priest of God offers mercy, grace, and confidence. Let's read this next section uh, the first section was hard, I think. It's hard to think that you need to have surgery and stuff cut away. Now let's look at our priests. And I want you to know that as we read this, from chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through chapter 10, verse 25, we are going to be hearing a homily on Jesus Christ being a high priest we can trust. And this just begins it in earnest. It's a shift in our sermon where he's going to his second point or maybe even his main point that of all of our discussions about are we secure in Christ, he is now coming to let's look at Jesus as our high priest that we can trust. In verse 14 it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Since then, or therefore since, if you have the New American Standard, this break in this sermon now shifts to Jesus Christ being a high priest that we can trust. Now, what are, what are a high priest's duties? Let's go back through what a priest does. A priest's job is to declare God's will to the people. A priest's job is to teach the law to God's people. A priest's job is to perform sacrifices and restore people's relationship to God. Those are the human priests. The high priest is supposed to enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, seeking forgiveness at the mercy seat. Leviticus 6, 9, 6, 1 through 19 gives us that story. The high priest's job is to represent God's people to God and to represent God to his people. It's a go-between. Why am I called a pastor and not a priest? Because from a Protestant perspective, we have put our trust completely in one high priest as the go-between. I am not your go-between between you and God. Jesus is. You have a high priest who has sufficiently asked that, answered that question. You don't need me to get to Christ. We already have our high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. What about this high priest? Who is this? He's passed through the heavens. 
Jesus, the Son of God. This high priest, we are going to see throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews almost, that he is remarkable. He's amazing. He is gifted. He is powerful. He is of a different order than the order of Levi. There are priests that were put in place from the time of Moses where Aaron became and his sons became the priests. But the problem was, within one generation, the priests were failing and were being chastised already. The problem was, human priests are also failing. We needed a priest who wasn't ever going to fail. Someone who was sufficient for us to be a between us and God the Father, to offer us access to God the Father. So let's begin to learn about this high priest. First is, he's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, came from heaven. He, he was the creator. He is God himself. He's the second person of the Trinity. This is not a human high priest only. He is human also. But he is also God himself. And that is our high priest. He is Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, implying that we, we came to this. He was offered to us through the Father. And uh, we see in, uh, that our response is to let us hold fast our confession. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So here's the first admonition of this section. Hold fast our confession. And this is what he's been preaching about all along through Hebrews to this point, that there are some who are drifting and some who are falling away. And the argument and encouragement and admonition and exhortation is, hold fast. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to what you learned. You can cling to the high priest. You can cling to Christ. Now, what, what about that whole cutting deeply and, 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 and wiping away my sin and, and dividing and all those harsh words that we heard just a section ago. Why can we hold fast to Christ as our high priest? What kind of high priest is he? Well, the first is, maybe doesn't help with our fear and trepidation is the fact that Jesus came from heaven himself and is the very Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity and he comes as our go-between, but is he himself approachable? Can we go to him like a friend? Can we go to him and trust him with our hearts, with our fears? There are so many people that are afraid to come into the presence of God because they think God will hate them and smite them and wound them. And if you just knew how bad I was, you would never accept me. He will throw me from his presence. And how scary it must be some, for, for some people to come into church or to come into Christ's presence and find out, what if I'm rejected? What if they find out I have these problems or I have these addictions or I have these concerns and these failures? What will Jesus think? We do not have a high priest that's like other humans. We have a high priest that has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, and we can hold fast our confession. In verse 15, he tells us why. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Sympathy. Sympathizes and mercy, grace, are words we're going to hear about now. I can tell you as a follower of Jesus Christ now for over 40 years, I have never once come to Christ and been rebuffed. And I've sinned. 
and I've failed and I've needed forgiveness. I have never come into his presence where he hasn't left me feeling loved. Now, he cut. He showed me my sin. But like a gentle friend, like a loving doctor, a physician who knows me more than anyone else knows me and loves me more than anyone else loves me. That's our high priest. Never runs out, never gets to a place where he says, I don't want to see you anymore. I want you to leave. As his follower, he is lovingly always welcoming his children into his presence, even if we failed again. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is not unable to sympathize with your weaknesses and what you're going through. The Scriptures tell us just here that He has been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He has been tempted in ways that maybe we don't even understand. Carrying the sin of the world and being tempted by Satan maybe more harshly than we've ever been tempted. And yet he does it, and now from heaven he looks at us with compassion, with sympathy, understanding what we're going through. He is a representative between us and God the Father that is so unique and so powerful that he is in God's presence, and yet he has been in the presence of people and been taken on human flesh and known what it was to experience our thirst and our hunger and our pain, our suffering, our sadness our rejection. Can you see the sympathy and compassion in his eyes? Hebrews 2.17 says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is how he helped us He provided a way for God's anger to be poured out on him and that we would not have to suffer the wrath over our sins. Proverbs 3.26 For the Lord will be your confidence and he will keep your foot from being caught. Jesus is in relationship with us to save us, to help us, to secure us, to keep us safe. And the tempter tempts us to believe that, no, I can't come into his presence until I get this figured out. Or I can't come into his presence until he'll be so offended by me. Or, or what if he does take away things that I love? You can trust him. He knows. He loves you and wants to give you what should be the longing of your heart that will actually give you life. He's the healer. passage goes on to say in verse 16 let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need with confidence let us draw near with confidence let us draw near any of you guys remember the wizard of oz when they're coming in to see Oz for the first time and how petrified the lion is and the scarecrow is as they're walking in, thinking, what if Oz rejects us? 
You imagine them as actors, just act super afraid. And they pulled it off. They're walking down the aisle, and it's a really long aisle, and all the smoke and the lights, and it's like, this is freaking me out. How is it that we can come into the presence of God with boldness or confidence? What does that even look like? Well, it looks like a loved child. You ever seen a child, the difference between a child that's been beaten on a regular basis and a child that's been loved on a regular basis? What does a loved child do? Walks right up and assumes that that lap is for me. Takes his spot in that lap. Doesn't matter what daddy and mommy are doing or papa or grandpa or grandma are doing. It doesn't matter. I belong here. I don't know what you all are talking about, but this is where I belong. That's confidence. I think that's exactly the confidence we're talking about when we come into the presence of Christ. Crawl on that lap. You belong there. This is the kind of priest that represents us, that causes us. So it says, let us then with confidence draw near. Have, ever, have you ever sinned and felt like avoiding God? Oh, if he saw what I was doing, if he saw what my heart was like. Like Adam and Eve, have you ever hidden from God? You know where you belong, right? As a child of God, you belong in your presence of your Savior. Stop hiding. Stop running. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How many times have you received anything but mercy and grace from the living God when you've come into his presence? Why are we running? Why are we drifting? Why are we falling away? A double-edged sword in the first century might have been something to be afraid of. But in the hands of our Savior, a loving God who wrote the Word of God, it was breathed by the Holy Spirit, uses it in His hands for our good. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Maybe what you need to hear this morning is that there is a lap that's waiting for you. Jesus, your high priest, has loved you, crafted you in your mother's womb, and loved you from your birth, and is calling you home. Stop running. When we come together, and sit under God's word. Every movement, every strike is meant to bring life and cut death from us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for your word and your son. So thankful that Jesus is the living word in our lives.
And I pray, Father, that you would cut into our lives and cut away the sin. We trust you with that sword. And I pray, Father, that you would do a new work in our church and in our lives and that that you would give us the life that you intended us to have. In Jesus' name.